Hello, robots, and welcome to today's episode of Remedial Studies. Today, we're going to be discussing the Duffer Brothers phenomenon of a Netflix original, Stranger Things, both seasons one and two. Just to get it out of the way, we're going to be probably talking about a lot of spoilers. You should know this if you've listened this far, but just in case this is somebody's first episode, we're going to be talking about pretty much a lot of the big major overarching things because that kind of ties into a lot of what we want to talk about. Speaking of what we want to talk about, how do you want to start us off, Anna? I'd really like to start talking about some of the reflection and kind of formal structure of the show. I think both visually and maybe with some plot things, there are things that happen in multiple contexts that are sort of reflect each other. Like one of the first things I noticed is um, when Nancy takes off her shirt uh, in that scene at Steve's house and then Eleven takes off or tries to take off her shirt in almost the exact same motion at Mike's house. And it's this sort of weird connection that's made there in terms of like agency and like the female body and and i just kept seeing things like that throughout the show yeah i I think that's fair i saw a couple of things like that especially in the first season i did watch season two in like a binge whirlwind so i wouldn't nothing from that is really sticking out in my mind um but what were a couple other ones in season one because the one with Nancy and Eleven, I do remember. Um, I didn't think about it in that context when I originally watched it. It was one of those things, like, I thought back and I was like, huh, that's really clever. Well, I think one of the main ones that shows up a lot is the repetition of, like, the Dungeons and Dragons conventions with things that are happening in the show. Or not the show, but, like, the actual plot in real life. Their real life, not our real life. Yeah, because the show with the four main boy squad in the grand tradition of It and Stand By Me and the Goonies and all those wonderful things, it we, we first meet them when they're playing Dungeons & Dragons in Mike's basement, correct? Yes. In the storied tradition of Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah, because that, that initial incident that we kind of come upon them acting out with the Demigorgon it's never really explained where they are. It doesn't really matter. But how they eventually do have to face the Demigorgon near the end of the show. And it's kind of implied that that's what it is. But we don't really know for sure until later. But yeah, we saw that with the Upside Down, which is the Veil of Shadows or Shadow Shadowfell in 5th edition. And in the second season, even though it took me 900 years to figure this out... And I felt like an idiot. It was the Underdark. Yes. Because it was the weird upside down, but kind of underneath the world. There's the whole thing that I found very endearing throughout the whole show, which is the concept of the group of kids. And I think eventually grew to encompass kind of everybody at these the big pivotal moments throughout both seasons of the adventuring party. So, obviously... Dungeons and Dragons is a big part of both our lives in the show. I think the most interesting through line to me, again, that sort of idea of the adventuring party and how it sort of differs from season to season. Like Eleven is sort of not involved in the second season 
core party of Mike, Dustin, Lucas, and Will, but is, and Will is even kind of separated from them in a more existential mental way than the physical space he left in the first season. But he's replaced almost or subbed in by Max, who I love and I would die for, and Steve Harrington. Yes. Who I think might have one of the more interesting character arcs oh, in the whole really show. Oh, he does, doesn't he? Yeah. He no, really I does. Agree. Because he could very easily be, and I think he was, up until he turned that corner in the last episode of season one, he really kind of was that, like, Emilio Estevez at the beginning of Breakfast Club. Like, he was that jock. Not really like a jock, but he was like that cool Danny Esposito dude, even if he was only that in his own head. Like, he was that kind of stereotype of, like, the big man on campus. But there was nothing really underneath it. Yeah. When Nancy and Jonathan are fighting the Demogorgon in Jonathan's house, it's Steve who ends up taking this baseball bat full of nails that he then keeps throughout the rest of the show and just whacks its face in. I I find that immediate sort of arc very interesting and then the fact that he kind of takes this i believe kind of genuine love that he has for nancy realizes it's not going to be returned in the way that he wants and kind of redirects it towards keeping these kids safe is something that i didn't expect because that's not something we see from male characters very often yeah i mean that whole arc with nancy is is really interesting because of course he believes that she's cheating on him and his initial reaction is very poor i would say right because there's the graffiti and the fight in the alley yeah that was that was some bullshit (laughs) yeah but at the same time i fully believe that that's what teenage boys are capable of Mm -hmm. also his friends are really shitty like his friends in the original season they're like egging him on the whole way yeah, if you combine those two things, like, that made sense to me that that would be his initial reaction. But right. then, like, that moment, he has, like, a couple of turning points, like, where he goes to clean up the graffiti that he presumably either painted or assisted in painting. Mm-hmm. And then when he goes to see Nancy and she's at Jonathan's and he, like, runs out of the house, but then he runs back in the house. Yeah, I think that's kind of mirrored a little bit in the second season in his fight with Billy, because he's like, kind of do not engage for a while there. And then he threatens Lucas and he goes full team mom, like you touch one of my kids, (laughs) I will rip your throat out. Yeah. And even though that doesn't work out so good for him. Oh, he gets his ass kicked so bad. What's his name? Billy. Billy. I think so. I don't even care if I'm getting his name wrong. I felt his name was Andy, but I'm also, I don't know. I don't like him that much, so I didn't bother remembering anything about him. Relatable. I do that. I'm like, oh, I don't like you, so I'm not going to retain any information about you. Sorry, not sorry. That's true in fiction and in real life. (laughs) Can confirm. Gosh, I hate Billy. Um, what? Where was I going? I got so distracted by how much I hate Billy. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know where we were going. Um, we were talking about Steve and getting his ass kicked, and even though that doesn't work out for him, and then we got sidetracked. Oh, yeah, even though it doesn't work out for him, I feel like in this case, it is the thought that counts. Gosh, I hate Billy. I mean, like, I get it. He has a nice butt. There's a lot of focus on that. Yeah. 
I was incredibly creeped by the scene with him and Mike's mom. Yeah, that made the gorge rise a little bit because I'm like, do we just not have morals in the 80s? Like, what is happening here? I mean, his parents are awful. Yeah. I mean, is she that, like, repressed? Is her husband that awful? Like, is she trying to reconnect with some lost golden age? They're the quintessential suburban couple that hates each other and just got married because that was what you were supposed to do. And that's, like, a whole thing in the show. Mm-hmm. is the rejection of normalcy. I'd like to bring Bob into this because... Rest in peace. I miss you, Bob. Bob, Let's the real MVP. Bob, for real, though, he kind of was. <laughs> he kind of was the real MVP there. Right? But, like, Bob? Bob takes all this in stride. He shows up to Joyce's house and is like, oh, your kid is sick. I brought normal stuff to bring a kid when they're sick. Like, being really sweet. And then she's like, I need a really smart person. So you're gonna, you're gonna come into the crazy place with us and you're gonna solve this puzzle with no context. And you know what? Bob does. And then they go out to a cornfield in the middle of nowhere and dig a, and Joyce jumps down into these subterranean tunnels that are spooky as heck. And, and what does Bob do? takes it in stride and even though they're rescuing like a large manly man who obviously has a history with joyce that he would know about because they all went to high school together that's made abundantly clear Mm -hmm. does bob get jealous no not for one second is bob ever jealous of hopper not for one second no he is so capital g good and that was so refreshing Not only in the context of, like, this show, to have him just be a character and to be who he was was so nice. I thought they were maybe going to put him in a little bit of the bumbly stepdad role, and then it just, it never, it it looks like it's going to go there, but it never quite does. And at the end of the day, he's the only one of them who knows basic. Like, he's the only one who knows computer language. He's the only one who can get the lab back up. Or who can unlock the doors. Like, he is just as integral to everything that's going on in the show as everyone else. And it is kind of astonishing in a good way that he just he just takes it all. Even in the sort of beginning of it where he still thinks it's kind of a game. Like, I remember him coming home and instead of being like, what the hell is all this? When, like, Hopper and Joyce have all the different tunnels in the Underdark plastered up all over the living room. Much like the lights from the last season. And he's like, oh, cool. What's this puzzle? Like, can I help? (laughs) Yeah. Like, he really is the kind of person who, like, will run into a burning building and be like, help has arrived. Like, that's (laughs) who he is. But he's not doing it because he's a hero either. He's just doing it because it's the right thing to do. And he's not even mad when they drop his fancy camcorder. I don't know. I just love Bob. He deserved better. He deserved better, but also, like... He was never going to live. No, he was too pure, too good for this world. Yeah, because I feel like, and this might be a good segue, I feel like there's a thing that Stranger Things lives and dies on. It is its genre conventions. Yeah. In a good way, I am not entirely opposed, once in a while, to watching something that's predictable. It's why I read romance novels. Yeah. There's a comfort in the formula. And I think they do enough with it, like they mix and mash enough with it that it it makes it interesting and obviously fun to watch or people wouldn't watch it. But Bob kind of is 
he kind of is that stock character that is too good to live. Like, he's the person who almost makes it to the end of the horror movie and dies right before the end. Like, he's he's that guy. And in, that, in the big heroic sacrifice, I will never forgive the Duffer brothers for letting him outside the building and almost get scot-free. And then the fucking Demodog comes and bites his face off. Well, he doesn't get outside. He's in, like, the lobby. He's in the lobby, but he gets almost there but that's like the thing though isn't it yeah is almost but no cigar yeah oh the other you mentioned horror movies i wanted to talk about the fact that nancy against horror movie tropes does not die immediately upon losing her virginity (laughs) that was pretty damn nice i gotta say yeah she's shown as as competent and sensible and smarter than like government doctors i don't know i've worked for the government that's probably not as much of a compliment yeah <laughs> but you know saying. but yeah i know what you mean in the context of the show that might tie in a little bit with what we talked about with shape of water which um what's his face i've already forgotten him because i hated him so much what's this strickland richard strickland strickland with the dead fingers Ugh. he completely overlooks the actual perpetrators of a crime because he refuses to believe them capable of it. And that, I think, is very similar to how Nancy's treated throughout the course of the show, is people don't believe in her. And that is incredibly relatable at times, because young women, and this is, I feel, a blanket statement that we can give some some credit to, young women, especially, like, older teenage, not a girl, but not yet a woman, <laughs> that kind of age group, like 17 to 24 are not taken seriously at all no no (laughs) i mean we have been 18 to 24 year old women it was not fun it's still not fun it's still not fun to have people kind of question your own emotions we see that with that's a more overall female experience thing we see that with joyce as well where hopper in the end really is the only person male person who takes her seriously it also takes him a while. She doesn't just she doesn't just get the benefit of the doubt. Something happens where he's like, "Okay, let's revisit this because it's obviously very strange." Yeah, cuz he's very much I feel in the beginning kind of going through the motions mm-hmm. where he's like, "Well, I can't brush this woman off. Her kid really is missing." There's a lot of like doubt kind of leading up to this. But I think the real turning point for him was figuring out that Will's body wasn't real. Yeah. And just being like, fine, I'm going to go in and I'm going to see if it's real or not. And then I'll know for sure. And he cuts it open and it's just fluff. I think it's like right after that, too, that he goes back to his apartment and just not his apartment. He says mobile home and just trashes it looking and finding a bug. (laughs) There's a couple of things in the first season, especially that really helped establish how good of a mom Joyce is, mm-hmm. especially in comparison to Jonathan and Will's father, who is not really in the picture and kind of only comes back to sue the city or some shit. It's never really established because I don't think he had an established plan. But like there's a moment where the morning that Will is declared missing, she like goes and like Jonathan's making breakfast and she like pats his shoulder and you see her like automatically lean to where Will would be sitting to like pat his head 
And it isn't until her hand, like, goes through air that she, like, looks over and sees that he's not there. And the other moment that I remember more specifically was there were two of them. One was for Jonathan. One was for Will. The kind of, it keeps getting brought up, Will and his art. Mm Mm-hmm. It's shown pretty much throughout the show they don't have a lot of money. And the fact that she doesn't hesitate to be like, oh, well, we'll get you new crayons or we'll get you whatever you need because she wants to support this clear passion that he has. And the other one was when she's yelling at, at Lonnie and she and he's like saying, oh, no, I care about Jonathan and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, OK, where does he want to go to college? And he doesn't know. And she's like, NYU, Lonnie. He's wanted to go to NYU since he was like four years old. And there was something in the how angry she was that he didn't know that, that I was like, damn, Joyce, you're a really good mom. Yeah. Who really cares about your kids. Yeah, and contrast that with, like, the weird Mike and Nancy's parents who are just, like, not They're just not there. They're very very disaffected, I feel, from, like, their entire lives. And that's something I I know Nancy and Jonathan in their in an argument they have they kind of touch on and you said this earlier about how her parents are just together to be together because that's what you do the sequence of events that you're expected to go through yeah sometimes it works out if you're really lucky but a lot of the time it doesn't I think that like quiet desperation of the suburbs. <laughs> Is another thing that that really gets shown throughout the whole show that does tie into that rejection of normalcy that you talked about. Mm-hmm. That is shared at, at the end of everything by all of the characters. Eleven, even though there's eleven who just wants normal, desperately, <laughs> who desperately wants normal, and that makes complete sense for her character because of the horrible, horrible things that she's been made to go through in her very short life. Speaking of that, I think that might be a good place to bring up Kali. Yeah. In the search for normalcy. I went into episode seven. I didn't watch Stranger Things season two immediately. I watched it over Christmas with my mom. And I remember people were like ragging on episode seven and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, this cannot, I don't know what's going to happen, but it'll probably be fine. And then I watched it and I was like, oh, people just don't give a shit about women. (laughs) like that's kind of a blanket statement and that might be a bit extreme but also like we talked about this in our production meeting i don't think people realize eleven's the main character yeah that episode i feel like structurally because it diverted from the main thread and it was a lot of new characters like people Mm -hmm. aren't as invested and it was a lot of there's a lot of heavy lifting in that episode like it asks a lot of moral and ethical questions about revenge and vengeance and justice but that's not a thing that i think people really like to grapple with as much because there's so much to that it's like does this group have a right to go do vigilante justice to the people that have hurt them if it's the only way they're ever going to see any any repercussions for these people that have hurt them, like, there's no, I don't know. Like, it's a very interesting morally gray area. And I think at the end, when they're driving back from the failed heist, mm-hmm. where, you know, they've gone in and Eleven is about to, like, psychically, basically strangle this guy. And mm-hmm. then she realizes he has kids. And she can't take away someone else's parent after she's 
basically lost her own mother, essentially. Gained and lost her own mother in very short order. And Kali, she's going to shoot him, and she instead... Eleven throws the gun out of the window, and then in the van on the way back, Kali says, if you want to show mercy, that's your business, but don't ever take my choice away. Like, that spoke to me on a fundamental level as, like... I agree. That kicked me right in the chest. Yeah. If we look at the episode and how it fits into the sort of defined structure that the show had built thus far. We were kind of starting to just get into the very heavy D&D stuff. There was some interplanar uh, possession. And there was some <laughs> Underdark fun. And there was Mind Flayers. Kind of just paint this broader picture of like the big monster from the Upside Down that was sort of built up in the first season and is carried through throughout the second in Will's Visions. In this episode, it really kind of shows you a lot of the things that Eleven, rightfully, has seen as monsters are just people. Mm-hmm. And to sort of watch her learn that lesson, I think was very important because of her history with the people who ran the lab at Hawkins, especially her, fa- her father, quote unquote. Dungeons and Dragons and fantasy and monsters is the language the kids sort of adopt to talk about the threat they're facing i think almost as like a as a way to describe what they're going through because they don't really have any other language for it but also i think almost to cope with it yes <laughs> it's a set of rules it is again the, the dungeons and dragons being the set of rules and how there are rules that do not exist in any rule book but that everyone kind of knows and one of them is one dustin brings up which is don't split the party and I think that's interesting, again, if you talk about that episode where Eleven books it mm-hmm. and she goes off on her own adventure for her own character development that is essential to her continuation as a character, but it also puts her in a lot of danger and she doesn't really have any backup, even in these people that claim to, well, Kali claims to understand her, the others don't really. I did think it was interesting that she named herself after the goddess of death. Yeah, that was interesting because that it, that particular entity, I think, also is over chaos. If I'm I'm looking some, I'm referencing. Where's the Wikipedia article? Come on, Wiki. Oh, here we go. Here, here's her subtitle: Goddess of Time, Creation, Destruction, and Power. Ooh, that makes sense for what Kali can do. She can't physically manifest anything, but she can make you think she can. To segue from that into something that I talked about in our production meeting that I'd like to talk and work through, I do take a little bit of issue with how the Duffer brothers have Eleven interact as much as she is, as much as she can with Max. Because Max, for for reference, is a, a young girl who moves to Hawkins, Hawkins with her family starts at school at Hawkins Middle in the same grade as the boys. And they all are, like, fascinated with her because it starts when they go to the arcade and she is the new the new high score on their favorite pinball. It's not pinball, but it's, it's, a, it's a big arcade game, is under the tag Mad Max. Mm-hmm. And they sort of, through 
not as sneaky as they think they are sleuthing and deduction find that she she is in fact that mad max and they become like i mean it is played for laughs to be fair they become kind of weirdly intrusive in like her and trying to get her to join the group even though mike really doesn't want to because he's been like i don't want to say hung up that sounds bad but he's been like really really invested in like this deep-seated belief he has that 11 is going to come back because 11 disappeared into the upside down we thought at the end of season one never to return max sort of faces this weird sort of party split that she is she allowed in the group or is she not lucas and dustin are all for it will i don't think has an opinion because he's too busy being possessed Mike is just so against it. But I think the thing about about the whole Max and Eleven thing, because Eleven has a crush on Mike, and when she sees him, they're not even doing anything. They're just talking. When she goes back to Hawkins Middle for, I don't even remember the context of the moment, but when she sees them, can't even hear what they're talking about, can't do anything. She, like, makes Max's skateboard, like, fly out from under her feet, I think. Am I making that up? No. There was something about the immediate jealousy that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. It was the same as when she put on the wig and the dress, and she's like, oh, I'm pretty. Because I think my issue with it is how would a young girl, who presumably has spent her entire life as a lab rat in a confined laboratory-like setting with very, very limited human interaction, know of either of those concepts. Well, I'm going to, I don't want to say I'm going to play devil's advocate because I want to punch people (laughs) when they say that, and I don't. No, I get what you mean, though. That's why I come here. I want, I want, I want to be challenged. I'm not, okay, so first, I mean, the boys call her pretty. How she knows what that means I don't know, but I feel like she sees their, they have a reaction Mm -hmm. to her change in appearance because suddenly she is now feminine. It was easier for them to relate to her when she was not presenting as feminine. She was less threatening to them. Yeah, because that's a thing that is sort of brought up in the first couple episodes because her head is shaved and they think she's a boy. No, like like Benny from the restaurant. Well, and she's also mistaken as possibly Will. Like, they're not sure. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if maybe that's where that ties in, is she sees pretty as something as desirable because she gets that reaction or because, you know, she really, like, looks at Nancy mm-hmm. and Nancy is very pretty. And I wonder if there's something to that, but how she is familiar enough with the concept of pretty to know that. I don't know. That's a good point. Like, there very well may be an explanation that could take, like, one three-minute flashback to explain, but they don't show it. I think that the reason that, to me, that reasoning has the potential to fall flat is there's so many other things that she just doesn't know what they are. Like, the concept of friends Mm -hmm. like and that's like thematically like a big thing for her yeah throughout the course of the first season like i think one of my favorite lines is when she saves mike and dustin from those bullies and dustin's like yeah she's our friend and she's crazy like yeah 
she her being included in in this group and what that means and what that social almost like a social contract that you form with your party members as mike and dustin and lucas explained to her is very is novel to her um but that could also be explained by the fact that she has very if not no socialization yeah but then again there's also the fact that both of these things are narratively convenient Mm, that's true you know what when you're right you're right there's also that i think as for the jealousy stuff she's been watching a lot of daytime tv you know what that's a good goddamn point she's been watching a lot of soaps yeah, but it's also narratively convenient because now we have introduced conflict that needs to be resolved. If you look too hard, you're always going to start to see the moving parts. Mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately, I don't think it really affects the plot in either case, except obviously, it, like it's more character development-y, not story-y. Does that make sense? It's not a deal breaker. Like, it's not... Exactly. It's not like... I feel like they're not doing anything too, I don't know, they're not doing anything too harmful. It's questionable. I I feel like that's where I kind of landed with it, is it's questionable. But I think ultimately it says a lot more about the fact that it's too, I do not know how old the Duffer Brothers are, but I'm assuming they're two probably like older to middle-aged dudes writing writing a middle school aged girl. Yeah. Like they don't have that experience. I think for the most part, Eleven's pretty well handled. Yeah. I do like, and by like, I mean, it infuriates me in the show, but I also like, I like that it's it's put into the show is, we touched on this earlier, about how Joyce Byers is completely and utterly written off by everyone around her, but is actually right the whole time. Yeah, it's not pretty. It's not attractive. She looks dirty and messed up and tired Mm -hmm. and all the things that women aren't supposed to be but she's still right i do love how like in my mind the most famous image of her immortalized in many a piece of fan art is her just sitting like elbows on her knees spread spread legged on this couch with the lights and the letters behind her and holding that huge axe and (laughs) that she's just fucking ready for anything that's gonna come try to catch these hands that to me is is really very powerful and the fact that she's a mother and she's allowed to have these really kind of difficult ugly feelings because so much of the female character experience is getting put into a box where like mothers go here and children go here and sluts go here and virgins go here like (laughs) we're all kind of compartmentalized and the fact that a lot of the female characters Though I do feel there are not enough of them in comparison to the boys, but that's pretty much something you can say about everything, is that they're allowed to kind of hop between those stereotypes and just sort of be more full characters because of it. Yeah. Well, this show does better than a lot of shows. I will give it that. It it does better than a lot of stuff. And they did good. They introduced... They introduced another really strong, well-developed female character in Kali this mm-hmm. season. And, I mean, I guess we did also get Billy. I think my, my issue I take with Billy is not anything necessarily to do with his character. It's how that character is being interpreted. Yeah. I think it's important to show that 
he is a violent young man who is perpetuating this cycle of violent abuse from his father. I think that's something that's important to show because that's something a lot of people and a lot of young men go through. Mm -hmm. Like that part of it seems to be completely overlooked when people talk about him and they just want to talk about his ass, which to be fair is a pretty good ass. But like, I never felt that was the point of his character. I always thought he was supposed to be kind of a foil to Steve who kind of, as much as any 17 to 18 year old boy can, kind of says fuck you to toxic masculinity and like this weird sense of ownership he had over Nancy in the first season. And again, sort of places that onus and that weirdly enough, very big heart he ends up having onto these kids. Whereas Billy has no outlet. Yeah. Like, unless he's being mean and being abusive to Max. Yeah. Ah, oh, turns out the real, the real monster all along with toxic masculinity. Again. That's, that's where we get with a lot of our episodes, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But I think it's interesting because, like, I stopped and I thought about it for a second. So Billy is perpetuating one cycle of violence. Is Kali not also perpetuating a cycle of violence? And what does that mean? What does yeah. that mean? <laughs> this is a very hot button topic right now. Is <laughs> about the difference between and what can you really get out of both A, violent revolution, or B, diplomacy. <laughs> do you know no but you know what i mean like, like that's yes. something we're gonna talk about it in this most bare bones theoretical setup the whole thing that it always reminds me of is like someone said something i think it was a quote from somebody that i unfortunately do not remember but it was like the pen is mightier than the sword but the wise man knows which one to pick up <laughs> uh yeah ultimately it kind of boils down to what kind of violence begets violence and is anybody really better at the end of it because there is the whole idea i know like i think the batman comics are pretty famous for this i'm pretty sure this quote is from a batman comic where it's like if you murder a murderer the number of murderers in the world stays the same but like if you're one person and you kill a hundred murderers it goes down by 99 i think about that sometimes when i can't sleep so I, I think that's where Kali sides on it. She's like, yes, I am perpetuating this violence against these people. But like, it kind of reminds me of this quote this one female sharpshooter had about Nazis where she's like, yeah, but if I kill a Nazi, he's not going to kill everyone else. So why should I feel bad? Oh, I don't know. Oh, and also the murder a murder thing is apparently some random internet thing that was attributed to Batman. Was oh. probably just like. Someone probably just, like, photoshopped it onto a picture of Batman and was like, here's the thing. But I feel like that's an important question. Because that's something I think Eleven struggles with. That's, like, the whole point of, of Episode 7 is she is, like, kind of on board with the whole vengeance thing until she sees, like, what's really the consequence of it and what moral burden she will have to shoulder yeah. in order to continue on this journey, which Kali has no problem shouldering. That's a big part of her character is she just, she believes she is right and that she is doing this thing for the right reason and that if she enacts this revenge against these people, then no other child will have to suffer like she did. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. Right. 
I don't know, because it's interesting because before that moment, Eleven had killed people, but it was really only ever in self-defense. Mm-hmm. Never really out of... Like malice. Yeah, it was never really premeditated to, like, having this opportunity to make it almost all the way to that point. And I don't think she would have... I think she would have killed... She would not have hesitated had he not had children. Why is that the thing that excuses it? Because that's like a trope almost, is people being like, no, I have a wife or I have kids or I have a family. And like, there's some people like Kali who would be like, cool motive, still murder. (laughs) Yeah. And then there's people like Eleven who see it as like, I am taking away somebody's parent that is not admissible to me. Can we talk about for a second how devastated I was by finding out that her mom is not having like a pleasant experience stuck in her head? Yeah, that was a lot. I was really kind of hoping that she was almost that she was even if she wasn't really there, that at least she wasn't suffering. And the fact that she's being made to just relive this horrible, horrible thing that was done to her. The worst day of her entire life. Yeah. You mean over yeah. and over, over again? Over and over. And she's trapped in her mind and her body like that. That is like literally my worst nightmare. Yeah, that's, that is the, one of the scariest things that happened on the show. I think the other thing that really messed me up, like they keep putting like tentacles in people's mouths, which freaks me out. Oh, God, yeah. And they like cough them up and it's super gross and I hate it. And it makes me super uncomfortable. The other thing I really had trouble stomaching was when Will got possessed by the shadow monster. Mm. And all that smoke is just like zooming into his body through all of his orifices. And I'm just like, this is so gross. I think one of the hardest, emotionally, one of the hardest scenes to watch was his interrogation sequences with his mom and Jonathan. But the one that legit had me, like, I was sitting on my couch and I was crying, was Mike telling him the story of the day they met. I know! And how he just walked up to him and asked to be his friend, and how saying yes was the best decision he ever made in his life. And I'm like, that's, like, friendship really is magic, guys. Like, my little pony didn't lie to you. Like, it's... (laughs) I really think the show, as much as it is kind of fun to play with the 80s tropes and the monsters and the D&D and all that very fun stuff that kind of adds to that at its core is really these really tight emotional connections that string together this ragtag group of individuals, some of it familial, some of it not, but how like that whole conversation really kind of brings Will back out and how Mike to the almost bitter end refuses to leave his side because you don't you don't leave people behind and you don't let go of your friends and i was really affected by that yeah i think that's at the core of the show like those friendships and the way that those friendships are tested and ultimately survive even the super weird stuff like dustin like raises a demigorgon and they like still forgive him and value him and they make fun of his hair but at the end of the day like 
they're ride or die. And like that's, Mm -hmm. I think, what makes the show so compelling. Like the monsters are cool. You know, the special effects are cool. The mystery element's great. But at the end of the day, like these characters and their relationships are really why I care about the show and why I want to keep watching is to see how they grow and develop. I, I mean, like, I could probably watch a whole season of them just being in middle school and being weird little kids and not worry about the shadow monster. Like, I'm just invested at that level. Yes, the thing. I'm, I'm so invested, especially in the kids, but I'm also, like, really invested now in, like, Joyce and Hopper and if they can ever recover that, like, almost relationship they had in high school. And I want to know, like, is Max ever going to be okay? Is Steve going to be, like, fully integrated into the gang? Is season three going to open with him playing D&D with them? These are questions that I need answered. (laughs) I do want to talk about one more thing. When we talk about the whole genre of the show, I always say the genre is the 80s, but, like... (laughs) Well, because I found, I saw, it was a very interesting point somebody made um, on Tumblr when the first season came out is that a lot of the reason the three different groups like hopper and joyce and then nancy and jonathan and then the the kids the reason none of their investigations really work until they come together is because they're all really working in these three different genres that were really popular in the 80s like with jonathan and nancy they're like hunting this monster and like that's the only thing they see it as whereas with joyce and hopper it's like this government conspiracy and this cover-up which were all very popular post Watergate. And with the kids, again, it's that it's the Goonies and it's them trying to find their friend. But it isn't until they bring all of these genres and experiences together that they see the whole picture. And that's, I think, where the, the, um, the coming together of these things that are all sort of play into the aesthetic of the show, but also play into the appeal of the nostalgia of the show Mm. because i do think some of the appeal of it is that it is just far enough away that you can still make an almost idealized version of it true and i think that's a big thing in period drama yeah in any kind of period you set it in it is not necessarily that time period as it was it is what we view it as and those two things can sync up but that's not always the case yeah, I think that's a lot about human memory, though, mm. in a weird way. It, but it's on a societal level instead of the right. individual level. And I do, I do feel like we do kind of have rose-colored glasses sometimes, both on an individual and societal level, especially with like all the stuff that's going on right now. I feel mm-hmm. like people do kind of want to escape into quote unquote simpler times pre-internet because the eighties is the last decade. You know? Yeah, there was no internet. There was no real glo- like globalization of things. Yeah. As far as like information and technology like we see it today. So I kind of wonder if maybe the show's success is a little bit people missing pre-internet, pre-globalization type things. I think that's fair. We yearn for the simpler pre-LOL speak days. Um. So I think... My my final summation of Stranger Things as a cultural phenomenon and why I think it, it's as popular as it is, is a combination of the nostalgia that we talked about, where people want, they, they yearn for the simple time, 
we are all boats born ceaselessly back and all that fun stuff. But it has these these uh, these underpinnings underneath the pop culture, underneath the Dungeons and Dragons and the 80s references and all that stuff. It's built on a foundation of these strong human connections that are tested in these horrific ways and are found to be unbreakable. And that, I think, is a very powerful message to send in any kind of story, because I think it would be a bit easier to sort of have a lot of people kind of flounder off and all that other stuff. Like, there's some there's some satisfaction to be had in being proven right about how all people are the same and all people are awful. But the fact that the Duffer Brothers seem to work directly against that with all of their characters, even though there's some of them that are not good per se like billy's one of them i think his purpose in the narrative is maybe not the one people claim it is but i i think his purpose is showing a a harmful aspect of those relationships and how that can manifest into a cycle of abuse is important because it's not something we address a lot but i think the kids are a great example joyce and her endless endless adventure to just let her son have a good day and Eleven's journey to normalcy. I think all of that is so human and the fact that it is about the people the story involves, not necessarily at the end of the day, the monsters or the weird demiplanes they go to, that it ended on something so normal, a school winter dance, and that it was just a moment of them being kids and having fun and getting to have that normal quiet moment even if we know that it won't last the fact that they still get rewarded with just being allowed to be normal and boring is i think equally as satisfying um and i think that's gonna wrap us up for today we thank you, as always, for listening to the Remedial Studies podcast. We have a lot of fun making it. We hope you have a lot of fun listening to it. If you would like to get in touch with us on our various social medias, we are at Remedial Studies on Twitter. We're remedialstudiespodcast.tumblr.com. We are remedialstudiespodcast at gmail.com if you'd like to send us a good old-fashioned email. Um, we are available on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever your fine podcasts are available for download. You can also um, get just direct streaming links from our Tumblr if that's easier for you. Uh, anyways, pretty much fine. We're going to be doing some more experiments into making more content. We did put out the bonus episode on Shape of Water last week, which um, the people that mentioned that they listened to it said they really liked that kind of thing. So... We might be doing more stuff in off weeks. Life is being life right now. So <laughs> that might not happen right away. But we're definitely going to be um, sort of experimenting with putting out more content, maybe like shorter bonus episodes in the off weeks. Some of them maybe only including one of us because, believe it or not, we can like different things and we like to talk about different things sometimes. But that is... A story for the coming weeks and months, I think. Okay, so next time we're going to be doing Alan Moore's Watchmen, which I still have to reread, spoiler alert. But I'm excited to talk about that because that is something that has been um, a, I would say, a pretty decently sized cultural influence on comics and how we view them in the past 
few decades. See you next time, robots.